Today's Skim from the Couch is presented by John Hancock. We are partnering with them to help you face the future. More on that later, but for now, let's get into the episode. I am coachable. Whatever it is, like, tell me, because I want to do better. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Buckle up, skim listeners. Love that I get to say that today. Danica Patrick is one of the most recognizable professional female athletes in the world. She succeeded in the male dominated industry of professional motorsports, broke the record for the most top 10 finishes of any female in the NASCAR. Actually, she almost has too many first female two titles to count. She's been named to Time's 100 Most Influential People list, appeared in 14 Super Bowl ads, and graced the cover of Sports Illustrated. She may have retired from racing, but is far from slowing down. Danica is also a winemaker, clothing designer, author, and most recently, a podcast host. We are so excited to have you, Danica. Welcome to the couch. Thanks. Well, I'm on a chair, technically. You're right. We are on the couch. You're on the chair. Welcome (laughs) to the chair. You've ruined the mystique. (laughs) Dang it. Okay, edit. (laughs) Um, It is ironic. Strike that, as a lawyer would say. (laughs) So it's ironic for us to talk to you, one of the most celebrated drivers of all time, because you're talking to two people that are the worst drivers of all time. So it just feels like this is a big moment for us. Yeah. Do you guys have cars? No. No. That that helps to get better at driving. We have licenses. Which is scary that we were given that, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) I remember when I got my license. I got my license the day I turned 16. You can take classes in school. Driver's ed in school or drive right, as I believe it was called when I was growing up, which is out of school so that you can (laughs) time it right to get it on your birthday as opposed to waiting till the end of the semester. Anyway, so I get my license and uh, I think that I scared my driving instructor because I usually didn't slow down until the car in front of me backed up to yeah. me like as in like I saw tail lights <laughs> but until the car actually was closing the distance between my front bumper and his rear bumper I didn't break and I freaked him out okay I want to get into your background just give me your resume for us I grew up in northern Illinois I was actually born in Wisconsin born in Beloit Wisconsin grew up in South Beloit Illinois and I started racing go-karts when I was 10 Um, My mom and dad met on a blind date at a race. Like, my mom has been going to the racetrack, and my dad has been racing since he was a kid. I came along not far after. Um, My parents um, probably, I think they got married in 1980. They were around, like, 21-ish. I came along at about 22 years old, and then I started racing at 10. And at 16, I moved to England. I lived there for three years racing. I left high school my junior year and got my GED, my good enough diploma. And at that point in time, thought, man, I I better make this racing thing work. And came back to the States, didn't have a job for a couple of years, but then got taken in by Bobby Rahal, who is a guy who used to race IndyCars and had an IndyCar team. And he started a lower level team for me, and that went well. And 
then two years of that, and I was racing Indy cars, and then I did Indy cars for um, seven years, and then uh, I raced NASCAR for about seven years. There was a little overlap in them, but I did each of them for about that long and retired in 2018. Super easy. Yeah, so that's great. That's it. Good. Thanks for sharing. Um, So I want to, like, just talk about all of this. I have so many questions for you. Before we kind of dive into how a passion and a hobby became not only your career, but really a historic moment for female athletes, what is not on your Wikipedia or website that we should know about you? I don't know what's on my Wikipedia. At one point in time on my Wikipedia, I went to college. So that's sure as hell not true, <laughs> as I only have a GED. Did you ever think about going to college? No. Uh, well, when I was a kid, when I was 10, when I started racing, I thought I would go to college for engineering so I could learn how to work on my car um, because I want to be a race car driver. Yeah. But that was 10. And then probably by 11, I stopped thinking about that. Well, you had other things. Yeah. What do you consider your driving force, pun intended? <laughs> my dreams. I'm just kind of a dreamer. So... I like to dream into things at their furthest extent. Goals that go beyond something. I think it's important to have goals that go beyond the obvious. Uh, What's like an prob- example of that? Probably the simplest example is my winery. So I make a wine. Um, the name of the wine is Somnium, which means dream in Latin. And if my goal was to make money, which I haven't done yet, and it's been 10 years, I would have sold it a long time ago, right? Because that's dumb business. But my goal is not to make money. I believe it will when I accomplish my other goal, which is to help people come together from wine, um, to share and put their phones away and connect like we just don't do so well anymore, Um, to go to the Valley and experience Napa Valley and experience how wonderful it is to just be in nature and understand the farming and understand the details of everything, the romance of popping the cork, like just the whole thing. So I want to share that experience and help people just feel that. And that's what made me fall in love with it and why I wanted a winery. So that's really my ultimate goal. If my goal was to make money, I would have sold it, right? So, you know, just have a goal that goes beyond. Let's say another example would be fitness. If my goal was to lose weight, well, what do you do once you've done that? My goal is is to challenge my mind. So it keeps me going back into the gym to make up new workouts, see what else I can do, see how far I can push myself, um, create new challenges, new goals. Like I love the mental challenge of it. But if my goal was to be fit, well, I'm fit. Now what? You're done. It's like weight loss with eating. My goal is to feel good. So if my goal was just to lose weight through eating and I do that, then what? Mm -hmm. You'll never not want to feel good. I eat to feel good. That never ends. So it's about creating a goal that goes beyond something either obvious or more short-sighted. So as we've mentioned, we're partnering with John Hancock for our Face the Future series. I don't think they paid for that that sound effect. Like, (laughs) you're welcome, John Hancock. Um, It's all about helping skimmers take the guesswork out of their biggest money moves, like buying your first home, growing your family, or thinking about retirement. That sounds lovely. One day. It got us thinking about the kinds of money decisions we were making as we were trying to grow the skim. And there are many, many, many decisions that we were trying to make and trying to avoid while we've been growing the business. One question we get asked a lot all the time is, when did you start paying yourself? When you're starting a business, thinking about when do you take a salary 
from that, where does that money go first? We get that big financial decisions are hard to navigate. We have been there. We are also going through it. And we break them down all on our Face the Future page. Check it out at theskim.com slash future. Do you want to do a sound effect? Future! <laughs> you can also head over to John Hancock <laughs> to speak with a financial planner who can help you navigate the future. Whatever that looks like for you. I want to go back. What I always find interesting when we interview people who knew from a very young age what they wanted to do, you were 10. Mm -hmm. Was there an aha moment that you were like, oh, this is what I want to do? Was there anything else that was interesting to you? Or was this always driving your passion in the beginning? Well, before I wanted to do that at 10, I think the first thing I wanted to be was a veterinarian because I love animals, still do. And then I wanted to be a singer but don't ask me to sing. And um, I wanted to be a secretary. Actually, I think that was the first thing because my sister and I would pretend secretary with like old, old calendars and like yeah. a phone with, that wasn't that plugged too. in. Yeah, yeah. So my sister and I would do that. So I think I want to be a secretary then. Actually, I might have got them completely backwards. Secretary, um, singer, and then veterinarian, and then race car driver. Once I started, I just thought, well, I want to be a race car driver kids will say like I'm gonna be a singer and you're like oh yes you are like good luck with that and then they grow out of that how did you figure out this was something that your family was going to invest time and money in for you to be able to do this and then also that you were really good at it mm. we tend to like to do things that we're good at right I don't think anybody really likes to do things that are terrible at so it's about finding that which I always say is part of the battle right is finding things that you're really good at I probably wasn't going to be a basketball player I'm five foot one. Um, so that wasn't really going to be very realistic for me. Like you said, the kids go, I want to be this when I grow mm -hmm. up. Well, then you have to actually start doing it, right? So, I mean, we raced where if I wanted to be a veterinarian, I needed to start working at the local local shelter or, right? You have to actually start doing something. It's just like self-care or self-help. Like if you're trying to retrain your brain and think new thoughts and create new patterns, it's great to have an idea. But if you don't actually implement something that takes steps in making that a reality and, and practicing it, you're never going to do it. We went to the track. So I was like, oh, here we are. Were there a lot of other kids at your, your age at the track and other girls your age at the track? Well, there weren't other girls, really. My sister did try it at first, too. Um, but, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was in a – there's age categories, so I wasn't just – it wasn't all for one out there from, you know, 8 to 50. It was 8 to 12, 12 to 15. What did your parents hear about what made you stand out at 10? What was the skill set that you had that started to get noticed? I heard this way later, way later, uh, but it was that I wanted to keep going back to the track. I kept asking to go to the track. I don't remember that at all. <laughs> I think instant gratification is something rare to come by. And with racing, you get that because it's lap time. So I'd come in and I'd be like, what was my lap time? You know, so I loved that process of making it handle better, going faster, or, you know, pushing a little further. So for me, there was some instant gratification rewards with it. But I, I guess I just kept asking to go. And also, I am coachable. Hmm. So I think that's another thing, too, is that not everyone is coachable. And like I tell anyone that, like, I mean, hey, if when you hear me 
doing a podcast, you think I should have asked something else or I'm interrupting too much. Whatever it is, like, tell me because I want to do better. You take the feedback. Yeah, yeah. I am really curious about your family and how you grew up. So you left high school during your junior year Mm -hmm. to race on the European circuit, and then you moved to the UK on your own. And this was all while you were a teenager, Mm -hmm. correct? And we've known you for about 19 minutes looking at the timer, but you seem pretty grounded and normal. How did that happen? Mm -hmm. I don't think that... um, If I had been left to my own devices or had success early on when I was even a late teenager, I don't know how I would have turned out. How did you you get through that? Thank you. Yeah. Um, Well, with racing, it's a little interesting because there isn't that mark in time where you aren't with your family anymore. Now, yes, I did move to England when I was 16, and I was there for three years pretty much on my own, but... I came home and moved back in with my family. You know, there wasn't that break like you see in college where somebody goes to college and then they move away and they go play for a team. They get drafted and start to make millions of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars in professional sports at the age of 21. And that just is not how it goes in racing so much. So I think that's part of it, being around your family and the norm that you grew up with, you know, having good values and being disciplined. Your parents seemed like they were obviously insanely supportive of you and this journey. Mm -hmm. How did they handle seeing a daughter grow into such a success at a young age? I mean, I know that they were proud. Like, obviously, they tell me that a lot. Well, my dad for sure loved racing more than me. I mean, it was definitely his thing. Um, So I think at times he would kind of project his own feelings onto the situation, which wasn't always the best. It wasn't all just like roses. But I think that uh, they couldn't imagine if I didn't have the opportunity, like especially with going to England. Mm-hmm. They're like, it's hard, but I couldn't imagine that if you didn't have the opportunity, that'd be even worse. They were really supportive. And yeah, they weren't scared to let me try either. Sometimes I think parents can project onto you their own fear of things. Yeah. That's one thing that they didn't have or didn't do, right? I mean, you could be afraid that your child would be in danger. You could be afraid that your child would fail and you're trying to protect them from that. But really, most all the time, whatever you're feeling and projecting onto someone else has so much more to do with you than it does with them. Do you ever think about the danger? Much more when I was done. I was part of the broadcast for the Indy 500 this um, this year after finishing up with that race last year. And I, rem- I mean, I felt the weight of like, whoa, these people out here are crazy. <laughs> you know, you can climb a wheel and launch into the stands pretty easily. So, <laughs> you know, I, I was able to reflect on that when I was done. But during, it was an awareness, but not a real long thought process because it didn't serve me. If you had to kind of weigh how competitive you are with yourself versus with others, how do you kind of think about how that weights out? Mm. I'm probably more competitive with myself, I guess holding myself to a high standard, I'm more hard on myself than I am with the other scenarios. Just to kind of situate us in terms of timeline, you spent time in Europe, you come back, you're with your family, and then you start with Indy. Is that right? Kind of. Like, uh, I'm, when I'm, I came I'm back, jumping a few years. Yeah, that's but... okay. And I was 19, and, and I came home the end of 19, beginning of being 20 years old. I didn't have a ride. When I was 23, I was racing Indy cars. At what moment or what part in this kind of trajectory did you realize 
not only like are you getting a lot of attention because you're really good at what you're doing, but also because you're really breaking ground for women? Uh, when I was 14. Yeah, way earlier. Um, I was a freshman in high school, I think. Yeah. And yeah, I wasn't there very many years, so probably was. I mean, there's only a couple to choose from. I really wasn't even there my junior year. Uh, so freshman in high school, and I had two different shows that came to my high school and filmed me. Uh, one was ABC, um, the network. They were running a Sunday special called Passion to Play, Making of a Champion. And the three girls um, were myself, Tara Lipinski, and Anna Kornikova. Wow. And we were all 14, and so we were featured in that. And then the other one was MTV. When MTV was really cool. Yeah. <laughs> when they played the full music video. Loved it. <laughs> when it wasn't just shows. <laughs> um, how did you make friends? Like being on the track, were there other people you were racing? Was yeah. it other athletes in the Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can I first... tell we have a lot of friends. Uh, yeah. I'm like, don't I seem friendly? Like, no, you do I'm seem friendly. I'm from the Midwest. But... Of course, I'm friendly. I am too. Yeah. yeah, you're from the Midwest. I'm from Chicago. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, then I grew up near Rockford, so yeah. Roscoe's right on the state line. You make friends with who you kind of vibe with, mm-hmm. right? Like sometimes your teammates you love, sometimes you hate them, sometimes it's someone else. You know, it's like everything else. So you find your little spot with people because they are like you. When I was reading about you, I was sort of struck that there was a moment in in your career where you were having trouble getting funding and your dad helped underwrite your career. And Mm -hmm. you got a lot of criticism around how you were living your life and how you were spending money. And what kind of came out was that you were doing nothing different than how a male driver would be spending their time. But you were the one that came under fire. And Mm -hmm. I'm curious when you started to realize that you were getting judged differently. My parents were paying for me while I was racing in England for um, a big portion of that. And my managers had caught wind that I was going out too much. And I mean, I was going out. I mean, I was yeah. <laughs> I was living alone and I was, uh, you know, I was probably 17 at that point in time. So pretty much anything goes over there. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, but yes, I wasn't doing anything more than anyone else. So this wasn't as far as like this wasn't public criticism. I wasn't well-known at all. But this was more of a scenario internally about whether or not my managers were going to continue to help. And so my parents thought, well, if you're not really serious, why are we doing this? What was I there for? Mm -hmm. So I think we all have these moments in our life where like, "Ah, yeah, you're probably right. You know, human nature is to kind of do the minimum and everybody's minimum is different. But my minimum was different now because I was like, I can't do any of these things anymore. So I had some new rules going back um, if I was going to be supported. I mean, it was a little miserable, but it was it's part of the growing. They're called growing pains for a reason because it's not that fun. What's been the race or the competition that's meant the most to you that you've won? Well, I won in Japan. That was my IndyCar race that I won. And it was a big relief. But I would say that the most pivotal thing for me was my very first Indy 500. I just about qualified on the pole and I about won the race. I qualified fourth and I finished fourth. I almost spun in turn one on my first lap of qualifying, but still qualified fourth, which is kind of amazing because, you know, you have one little lift and you could drop a bunch of spots, but I still qualified really well. And then it was really close and, um, you know, fuel was a little bit of an issue. So that was the one that put me on the map mm-hmm. to stay in a way. So 
So I'm from Chicago and I go home every Thanksgiving, which means so much holiday travel rush every single year. And it's a really important thing to keep up healthy habits amidst all of the holiday craziness. One thing that I never give up is my quip. We are obsessed with this toothbrush. Quip is an electric toothbrush that has sensitive sonic vibrations with a built-in timer and 30-second pulses to guide a full and even clean, which means you can zone out while you're brushing your teeth and it beeps, it like kind of buzzes, and then you know it's time to move on to the next section. The Quip floss dispenser comes with pre-marked string to help you use just enough. Plus, Quip delivers fresh brush heads, floss, and toothpaste refills to your door every three months with free shipping. So your routine is always right, and you don't have to think about it. If you go to quip.com skim right now, you'll get your first refill free at getquip.com skim, spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash skim. Quip, the good habits company. When you think about not being just an athlete, but also an icon to a lot of women who are girls that are considering racing or just, I think, any young girl growing up and seeing that this is something you can do, is that heavy to you? Is that something that you ever actively think about while you were racing or has that come after? More after. I mean, that kind of leads into why I have my own podcast now is because when I was finishing up the last few years, I did recognize that just being out there was enough for some people, which, you know, I think the reason why I had such success along the way was because that was never enough for me um, to just be a participant. So I wanted to have that ability to inspire and help people grow and help people believe in themselves after my career. Uh, and I was actually, I was promoting my book, Pretty Intense, last year at the very beginning of the year. And I had done a few podcasts. I went on Joe Rogan. I went on Rich Roll. I went on Lewis Howes' show. And I hadn't even like grasped the podcast thing for me. I mean, I know it's been around for years, but I just... Not that long. Actually, I remember <laughs> going on Adam Carolla's podcast way, 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 way. I mean, he might have been the the first ever podcast that ever existed way back in his garage, probably 15 years ago. And I was like, what is this pod? I mean, so it's not that I didn't know the word, but I just didn't listen to him. I would watch clips on YouTube Mm -hmm, or something mm -hmm. like that, like people that posted on YouTube. That was much more of my source. And so I was like, how long is this interview? Like, well, it's like 45 minutes. I'm like, what? Oh, God. How many of these do we have? (laughs) Yeah. And I did them, but I felt such an energy from it and a rush of just like excitement and connection. And you were able to go so much deeper. And my life was 20 plus years of, yeah, way more, 30 years of five to seven minute interviews. Right. That's all I knew. And this whole format of podcast was so much different. But I felt energized by an hour of talking to someone deeply. Uh, versus the drain of a five-minute interview or a couple of Mm five-minute interviews. Mm -hmm. So that was what really gave me the idea to have my own podcast. Who were your mentors when you were coming up? Always an interesting question um, because I just didn't have them. 
I talk about being that person mm-hmm. for other people. But then on the other hand, I also say if they're like, I want to grow up and be like you, I'm like, you should want to grow up and be better than me. Like you shouldn't want to be like me. You should want to be yourself. And I should maybe be some kind of inspiration to think big and not be afraid to do what you want. But you shouldn't just want to be like me, right? Because you could never be like me. And also I could never be like you. I can only do me great and you can only do you great. So I just didn't have them. Um, I never wanted to be like anyone else. Was it lonely being on the circuit? No, no. I do think that the part that maybe made it the hardest was that camaraderie. You guys have a big office here and lots of people and... You know, camaraderie goes a long way in that environment that you work in and the connection and people working hard for each other. And so it didn't dawn on me until the end of my career when I realized why I don't want to go to the shop and hang out and why I don't, like, get really into that side of things of team building. I'm a girl. It was like I had the thought of if the whole team was made up of girls, I'd probably be really good friends with a couple of them. I'd probably hang out all the time. But they're not. And so, you know, either I don't relate to them at all or then you run that other different scenario of it's not appropriate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not going to dinner with one of the guys on the team. Right? That's actually I've so actually, we've had this come yeah. up with work a lot. For us, it's been obviously well documented. Most sources of funding come from men. And part of how you start to develop relationships with your investors is like you need to socialize with them. Sure. You need to see like Go you're going to work Go really closely with Whatever. them. And we're lucky that there's always usually two of us. But there have been instances as we had um, one of our male advisors now we laugh about it but there was supposed to be a dinner where it was going to be the two of us and him going and she had to cancel and it was just me and him we kind of afterwards talked we both were hoping the other was going to cancel because we felt uncomfortable being spotted it was like I think a Friday night at dinner yeah and we laugh about it now I mean like it's so stupid but you had to think that way and it obviously at times can limit access to mentorship it can limit access yep it's comforting to sort of hear that you experience that too to to make I mean that was my whole that was my whole existence yeah. was with all guys. And so it makes sense why it was harder for me to develop the personal relationships and the camaraderie within because I either didn't relate or it wasn't appropriate. Mm-hmm. So now you've got books, you've got the clothing line, you've got the wine company. What did you learn about business from the years on the circuit? Or do you feel like you were starting from square one? in starting all of these different business ventures? There was a lot of a feeling of square one. (laughs) Um, Running businesses versus being an element of a business. Because with racing, I wasn't calling a ton of shots. Like, I wasn't hiring my engineer. I wasn't hiring my crew. I wasn't hiring my... Who does that? The team does that. Okay. So the sponsor comes in and pays a chunk of money, and I give them X amount of days of my services of appearances and photo Mm -hmm. shoots and whatever else. And then I go drive the car. So there's like so much that's out of your control. Um, So there's less to do. I find that so interesting because part of what I imagine you love about racing is that you are in control. Mm. And then when so much of your existence then is not in your control. Well, that's what I learned in NASCAR. The car was so critical to performing. And so if they didn't believe in you, Um, And they didn't put the time and effort into developing that car and massaging on it, as they would say, and taking care of the details. Then the difference between good and average was big. As you go into these other ventures and really kind of solidify your role as a businesswoman, what are you most scared of? 
I mean, I just don't want them to fail. I was the same in racing, though. If someone would ask me what was my biggest fear, I'd say failing. That's the same thing. What is one venture in your growing business empire you haven't taken on yet that you want to? Mm. Uh, probably something in the space of cooking. I mean, my book has recipes that I wrote, but I really love cooking. Actually, somebody asked me recently, what do I do that I love to do that the result doesn't matter? You know, because I'm pretty result-oriented. Yeah. Um, and I just like to be good at things, or I just don't really like to do them. So, but cooking, and mind you, I'm good at cooking, but the result isn't so critical. Yeah. Like, I just enjoy the process and something that I really just enjoy doing casually. I love to entertain. I love to just cook for myself. I mean, I can make my plate for one at home if I'm alone look beautiful just because I enjoy the art of it and we eat with our eyes and it's part of the process and it's just something creative. So whether it's for a lot of people or just myself, it's just a process I enjoy. So that's probably one thing that hasn't been realized in a business sense um, other than the recipes in the book. We're going to move to our favorite segment. Okay. The lightning round. <laughs> you should be good at this. Yeah, it's fast. fast paced. It's good. Oh, um, expectations. <laughs> First job. Uh, I worked at the Limited 2. Worst job. I loved Limited 2. Yeah. I did too. I wasn't a very good employee, though. Last book you read. I'm in the midst of reading Mindset, but I finished Meet Your Soul by Lisa Romeo. I reread that. Uh, not a pun intended this time, but um, what drives you now? Um, doing things that energize me. Worst professional mistake you've made? I was at the Indy 500. And I qualified really well every year until this year. And I got out of the car and I said it wasn't my fault. And I heard that for the rest of my career. Mm. <laughs> for quite a while anyway. <laughs> for years I'd qualified in the top 10 or 11 every year. And this time was really bad and it was scary as hell out there. And uh, that was pretty dumb of me to say. <laughs> First call when you get good news. Well, it's probably Haley or Aaron. Who's the first call when you get bad news? It's uh, either Haley, my best friend, business manager, assistant, do all. I, I can't even call you anything because you just do too many jobs, but or my boyfriend, Aaron. When was the last time you negotiated for yourself? That's what I have to do more all the time with businesses. In coming to New York here and doing podcast shows, um, I have a booker and she's been helping, but I was sitting down with my boyfriend, and he's like, you need to reach out to people. You can just send a message, create relationships. I'm like, you're right. Like, I am so used to everybody doing everything for me down to opening the door. I, I mean, years ago, I realized well, I walk through first all the time. I'm like, I got to let people walk through the door first. I, it <laughs> doesn't always have to be like that. And so I am so autopilot to just giving someone the job of doing something. So that's probably the most recent thing that I'm like, yeah, you're right. I have time. Create the relationships and talk to the people you want to talk to instead of just someone that a talent booker, you know, finds in their Rolodex. Who's your dream podcast guest? Oprah. Same. Do you want to teach me how to drive? If you want me to. Okay. Thanks so much. Um, <laughs> shameless plug. My podcast. <laughs> Pretty intense podcast by Danica. Great. Great. Danica, okay. thank you so much. Congratulations on everything. You're welcome. Thank you. 
Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra.